For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, to help prepare you for this weekend's Tucson Festival of Books, stay tuned for a series of interviews with some of the festival's standout guest authors, including Linda Valdez, Jimmy Blackman, Diana Gabledone, and Dan Falk. Plus, Tucsonans share some Shakespeare. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Tucsonan Linda Valdez has been studying Tucson and Arizona politics for decades. As a columnist for the Arizona Republic, she often explores and weighs in on the federal and state debates about border and immigration policy. But she hasn't revealed her personal experience with those politics until now in her new book called Crossing the Line. Andrea Kelly spoke with Valdez about the book, which is a memoir of her marriage to Sixto Valdez, a man from rural Mexico who moved to the U.S. to be with her. Linda, you married a man you knew for 10 or so weeks, and and during that time you lived in two different countries, although you were able to visit each other at the border. How did you take that leap of love and that leap of faith? It's difficult to say, look, retrospective. I, I just did. I mean, when I met Sixto, I wasn't the type of person who believed in love at first sight. I mean, that just sounds so corny, but that's what it was. And I I have been um, unsure of many things in my life, but I was never unsure of him. I was never unsure that I wanted to marry him. We got married two weeks after he crossed the border, and that was 27 years ago. You start the book um, with a vivid description of a scene of life in a rural town in Mexico, um, you've also said in the book that you're you're a Midwestern. You're a girl of the Midwest who eventually moved to Arizona. Um, how did you get used to a life with Mexican in-laws? And did you even speak Spanish when you met? I didn't speak much Spanish when I met Sixto, and he didn't speak much English. We spent the first year of our marriage carrying around a Spanish-English dictionary, which we literally wore out that year. He learned English much better and faster than I learned Spanish. I'm still not a very good Spanish speaker. It was uh, it was an adventure. The first it took about a little over a year before we could go to Mexico because we had to get his his papers. He we had to get his green card before we could go back to Mexico and meet his mom. And I was very nervous about that. I had no idea. I spent the whole time down there figuring out, you know, my little Spanish phrases, what I was going to say, none of which was needed because when she came rushing out of the house, she just embraced me and that was it. I was a member of the family just that easily. My mother-in-law was a wonderful person. She, she was an amazing woman. She got married when she was 14. She had 14 children all of which she raised to adulthood in a house with a dirt floor. The house was uh, built of cactus ribs and mud, the house my husband grew up in. The first house I saw, there was 
part of that house remained and part of it she was already rebuilding uh, with with cement and and block and over the course of of uh, the next few years we helped her rebuild her house but it was it was a challenge the first time I tried to blow dry my hair there was no place to plug in my blow dryer you know there was a very tiny mirror that I couldn't see anything you really you really learn a lot about yourself when you try to to make do without plumbing I can tell you that this is not your first book. The other book that you've written is largely a, a research, a nonfiction book. You're also working on another nonfiction book. So what about the writing process, writing a story that's personal versus writing a story that's non nonfiction about someone else that's more research-based? Well, what I tried to do with this book was make it I wrote it more in the style of a novel. I told I wanted to tell a story. I didn't want to make it a political book or a preachy book. Of course, it it follows the facts, but I I tried very hard to make it um, an easy an easy book to read and a book about about people and emotions and relationships. It is a different process than writing about than writing other types of nonfiction books. It's fun. It's a fun process. I, I think, you know, I might like to try fiction sometime when you really can throw off the bonds and do whatever you like. But it's um, because, it, because it was my family and because I wanted it to be accurate, there was still that, that link with, with the nonfiction style. You also spent a very big part of the book describing your first visit to Mexico with your husband, how overwhelming it was to be absorbed into such a, a huge family, a rural life, the language barriers. Why did you give that visit such prominence in the book aimed at an American audience? Well, because I think that's when I started to really learn what it was all about. One of the things that was most surprising to me, or and it shouldn't have been, but when we returned to his village, it was like this huge embrace uh, for for of him and of me too. I mean, they didn't they didn't judge me. I was I was welcomed as he was. But I realized how much he had given up, and how much um, that that community worked together and supported each other, and how much there was for him and. I think that's something that a lot of Americans don't realize when Mexicans come here or when any immigrant comes here is what they've left behind, what they gave up. And the, and the assumption is it's always better here. But there's that realization, there was that realization for me of what a rich, rich life he had left behind to come to the United States. You write in a way that seems self-conscious to me in parts of the book. Um, with a, with a concern about perpetuating stereotypes, whether they are stereotypes about Mexican culture and people or American culture and people. Is that something you've always paid attention to or was it heightened now that this is a public narrative? I think it's something that I consciously tried to do was overcome both of the stereotypes. I mean, I do write about my own family in there as well and uh, my mother also met Sixto's mother. They had several meetings and, and they were very similar in similar people, even though they had very different backgrounds. And I think I wanted to overcome the stereotypes as much as possible and get beyond that to see who the people are and how really similar in many ways, at least those two women who came from completely different backgrounds. I think it's important to integrate the, the, the new immigrants here, and it's important for us to realize how, how we're seen by other people. 
Linda Valdez is author of Crossing the Line. Thank you so much for sharing some of your story with us today. Thank you very much. That was author Linda Valdez talking to Andrea Kelly about her memoir, Crossing the Line. Valdez will be at the Festival of Books in the Author Pavilion West on Saturday, starting at 12.15 p.m. Author and war veteran Jimmy Blackman says life and death are two of the hardest subjects to write about. He's experienced both. Tony Perkins spoke with him about how he reconciles the difficulty in his new book. Some would say it's medicinal, and I guess to a degree it is to, to relive it, to talk about it. Um, and I, I think to a degree it helps some of us. Jimmy Blackman was a U.S. Army officer during the first year of the war in Afghanistan. His book, Pale Horse, Hunting Terrorists and Commanding Heroes with the 101st Airborne Division, is the first combat action account written from a helicopter pilot's point of view since the Vietnam War. You know, there were tears, and it was a challenge, uh, but it needed to be told, and I think the American people need to need to know it, like I said, from, from the inside view. Five medals of honor uh, earned in battles during that year where I was at and involved in the, in the fights, and... Um, you know, I, I thought uh, we can leave it to journalists to uh, interview and, and write this story, or, or we can write it for ourselves. Blackman tells the story of the men and women who served with him. Some were from wealthy families. Others hailed from poor neighborhoods. Each character is sketched in detail from Blackman's memory and his journals. Several emerge as war-weary figures. Others don't survive the conflict. You know, less than 1% of the American population serve in our armed forces and an all-voluntary force now. And so while America completely has supported us from the beginning of, you know, of, this, of this war since 9-11, uh, they don't know a lot of our soldiers. Blackman says investigative journalist and best-selling author Bob Woodward told him his perspective serves a greater purpose. And he said, uh, Jimmy, it broke my heart. He said, I was in tears reading some of this stuff. And, uh, and I said, well, good, because um, it ought to be tough to go to war. You know? It ought to be hard to make these decisions um, from a perspective of our nation, uh, you know, committing to war. And I think it makes it more difficult if people read things like Pale Horse and they see um, the price of war. Uh, the, the, the true price that, the, that America's sons and daughters pay. Blackman estimates he did countless hours of interviews with soldiers after their service was finished, discussing their fears, doubts, and anxieties. He says the stories told in Pale Horse show that the men and women he served with were in so many ways literally the kid next door. According to Blackman, he didn't write the book to etch a footnote in history about something he did. He says he wanted to ensure that a handful of Americans whose history would otherwise have been ignored would be remembered instead. Blackman says he's developing a follow-up to Pale Horse. He wants readers to continue to understand the balance between the tragedies and triumphs of the war in Afghanistan. He promises to reveal the connection between the battles he fought and the new terrorist threats challenging the world now in Syria and Iraq. 
Jimmy Blackman is among the authors attending the Tucson Festival of Books this weekend. He'll be one of the panelists discussing stories from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and Afghanistan, and their connection with cultural history on Sunday morning. He'll also talk about his book Pale Horse and sign autographs of his work later Sunday afternoon. I'm Tony Perkins for Arizona Spotlight. New York Times bestselling author Diana Gabledone's Outlander series has sold more than 26 million copies and has been printed in 23 languages around the globe. Her novels have also been adapted into a Golden Globe-nominated television series. Next, Julianne Stanford talks with Diana Gabledone. Gabaldon's first novel of the Outlander series centers on Claire, a World War II combat nurse just after the end of the war. When she and her husband Frank travel to Scotland on their second honeymoon, Claire inadvertently time travels back two centuries. She finds herself in a period of unrest between England and Scotland that eventually leads to a bloody uprising. It's in this time that Claire falls in love with a Scotsman by the name of Jamie Fraser. There are many elements in the books. Time travel, romance, bloody battles, a plot to overthrow a king. There's no easy way to put Outlander into one genre, and that's one of the reasons why it's so popular. Author Diana Gabaldon says there's something for everyone in her novels. What they are is uh, adventure stories, primarily, but adventure stories with a really strong moral center and a lot of what you might call philosophical questions hovering around the outside. Before Gabaldon decided to try her hand at writing fiction, she already had a distinguished and well-established career in biology. She was a professor at Arizona State University and the editor of the scholarly journal Scientific Software Quarterly, in addition to having three small children all under the age of six. She says it was, well, chaotic. There's no strategy to balancing exactly other than setting priorities. I mean, your family does come first. You can't just tell a toddler whose diaper needs to be changed that, you know, he's going to have to wait till he finishes his chapter. I mean, you don't. You change the diaper, and then you come back to what you were doing. When Gabaldon began to write the first Outlander novel, she had no intention of having it published. Uh, this was the first fiction I had ever written, you know, other than like short stories for high school classes. And uh, so I said, I need to write a book in order to learn how, you know, to figure out uh, what it takes in terms of mental commitment and daily discipline and organization and so forth to actually write a book. And then once I know that, I can decide whether I want to do this for real. Maybe it's a reason why Gabaldon's books appeal to so many people. When she wrote it, she wasn't writing it with an audience for a romance novel in mind or a science fiction lover. She wrote it for herself. Well, it's a very honest book. I mean, all of them are. These are these are real people. I wasn't writing uh, to be published. Therefore, I never at once stopped to think, what would anybody like about this? Had I been writing for a market, I might have thought that, but I wasn't. I was just writing to please myself. You know, these are interesting people. You know, they're facing really entertaining conflict. Let's just follow this and see what they do. So how did Gabaldon come up with an enduring plotline that has driven a nine-part series, spin-off novellas, and a television show? I, as I say, was wanted to write a book for practice, and it didn't matter what sort of book. So I thought about it for a while and decided that for me, uh, probably a historical novel would be the best because I was a research professor. I knew my way around a library. So I began uh, sort of casting my mind around thinking, well, what would be good? You know, Florence in the 1500s, you know, Venice, American Civil War. That sounds appealing. Gabaldon found her answer from an unexpected source of inspiration. 
and in this frame of mind, I happened to see a really old Doctor Who rerun on public television. This was one of the old Patrick Troughton episodes. The Doctor of the title is a time lord from the planet Gallifrey who travels through space and time having adventures. And along the way, he picks up companions from different periods of Earth's history. Well, in this really old show, uh, which has to have been made, you know, 50 more years ago, uh, the Doctor had picked up a young Scotsman from 1745. And this was a young Highlander named uh, Jamie McCrimmon who appeared in his guild. And I said, well, that's kind of fetching. And I found myself still thinking about this the next day in the church. And I said, well, you know, you want to write a book. It doesn't really matter where you said it. The important thing is pick a point and get started. Gabaldon says she then added a female character in the mix to play off all the men by creating conflict and a little sexual tension. So the third day of writing, I introduced this English woman. No idea who she was, what her name was, how she got in the plot, what she was doing there. I just loosed her into a cottage full of Scotsmen to see what she would do. And she walked in. They're all sitting around the fire, mumbling to each other. And they turned around and stared at her. and thinking, why, does she look odd? What's going on here? Anyway, one of them drew himself up and he said, my name is Dougal McKenzie, and uh, who might you be? And without my stopping to think, I just typed, my name's Sarah Elizabeth Peachum, and who the hell are you? And I said, well, you don't have all like an 18th century person. And so I started trying to beat her into shape and make her talk like a historical person, but she wasn't having any. She just kept making smart-ass modern remarks, and she also took over and started telling the story herself. Gabaldon will now read an excerpt from her first book. To set the scene for you, Claire has just traveled back in time two centuries. She finds herself caught in the middle of a skirmish in the forest between a group of kilted Scotsmen and British redcoats. She's accosted by a British officer and then rescued and taken prisoner at the same time by the Highlanders. One of them is wounded, and Claire rushes to tend to him when her nursing instincts kick in. The instant the bandages were tied, the patient tried to sit up. I pushed him flat and put a knee on his chest to keep him there. You are not to move, I said fiercely. I grabbed the hem of Dougal's kilt and jerked it roughly, urging him back down on his knees next to me. Look at that, I ordered, in my best ward sister voice. I plopped the sopping mass of the discarded shirt into his hand. He dropped it with an exclamation of disgust. I took his hand and put it on the patient's shoulder. And look there. He's had a blade of some kind right through the trapezius muscle. A bayonet, put in the patient, hopefully. A bayonet, I exclaimed. And why didn't you tell me? He shrugged and stopped short with a mild grunt of pain. I felt it go in, but I couldn't tell how bad it was. It didn't hurt that much. Is it hurting now? It is, he said shortly. Good, I said, completely provoked. You deserve it. Maybe that will teach you to go herring around the countryside, kidnapping young women and killing people and... I felt myself ridiculously close to tears and stopped, fighting for control. Dougal was growing impatient for this conversation. Well, can you keep one foot on each side of the horse, man? He can't go anywhere, I protested indignantly. You ought to be in hospital. Certainly he can't. My protest, as usual, went completely ignored. Can you ride? Dougal repeated. Aye. He'll take the lassie off my chest and fetch me a clean shirt. Gabaldon is currently working on the ninth novel in the series. The second season of the television show will premiere on April 9th. For Arizona Spotlight... I'm Julianne Stanford. Diana Gabledone will be speaking at two ticketed events during the festival. On Saturday at 1 p.m., she'll participate in a panel about screen adaptations. On Sunday at 1 p.m., she'll talk about the world of the Outlander novels and do a book signing. We have a link for the schedule at azpm.org. How did what was going on in the scientific world of William Shakespeare's time influence his creative work? Canadian science journalist Dan Falk thinks he knows, and he'll be at the Tucson Festival of Books this weekend to discuss the science of Shakespeare. Here's Sarah Hammond's interview with Dan Falk. Shakespeare's dramatic works are filled with references to the sun, the stars, and the moon. But as the 17th century dawned, was he aware of the many scientific discoveries being made across Europe? 
Dan Falk believes the Bard likely knew about the science of the day. The dawn of modern science um, was, was just kind of beginning in Shakespeare's time. Falk is the author of The Science of Shakespeare. He points out that Copernicus's theory that the planets orbit the sun was published decades before Shakespeare was born, and thus there had to have been awareness. The world was changing, and because Shakespeare is inhabiting that world, it's just kind of in the air, and some of these ideas have, you know, uh, some kind of trickle-down effect, and so he's taking them into account um, as he's producing his works in a way that perhaps we haven't recognized in the past. Falk had already come up with the idea for his book when he was named a Knight Science Journalism Fellow at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology five years ago. As a fellow, he spent an academic year attending classes and science-focused seminars, master classes, and workshops to improve his science and technology storytelling skills. And he interviewed Shakespeare scholars during his time in Massachusetts. Also while there, Falk got to see and touch a Shakespeare first folio, the earliest printed record of his works. First time I got to see a first folio was at the Houghton Library, uh, which is the rare books library at Harvard University. And, you know, I got to touch it and turn some of the pages, and it's kind of my first time doing that, so it was kind of exciting. You know, I thought, are they going to make me wear the white gloves? Actually, they didn't, so you can, you can touch these pages with your, your actual hands. Did science influence Shakespeare's writing? Falk says yes, and he disagrees with some experts' dismissive attitude that there was no influence of the era's discoveries on the Bard's writings because he didn't live long enough to witness changes or he wasn't interested. Shakespeare did live, uh, as I mentioned earlier, at this kind of transition, time of transition when new ideas were just coming into being. And, you know, certainly I don't want to try to make a claim that Shakespeare was the Carl Sagan of his age, or if, if you have uh, younger listeners uh, who, who don't know who Carl Sagan was, uh, let's say the Neil deGrasse Tyson. You know, I, so I don't want to paint a picture of Shakespeare as the Neil deGrasse Tyson of the Elizabethan age. You know, when we take a close look at, at Shakespeare's plays, first of all, we see a, an immense interest in the natural world, which manifests itself in many ways. But, uh, for example, his understanding of uh, flowers and birds and, and plants and, and the weather. I mean, these things turn up in all of the dramatic works. A half of a millennium after Shakespeare's death, science continues to influence art, Falk says. Consider the dance opera called Symmetry, filmed inside the Large Hadron Collider. And author Arthur I. Miller wrote Colliding Worlds, featuring artists influenced by science and scientists influenced by art. Dan Falk will make four appearances at the Tucson Book Festival this weekend. I'm Sarah Hammond, Arizona Public Media. The First Folio One of the almost 400-year-old collections of William Shakespeare's plays is on display at the Arizona State Museum. The exhibition has inspired a series of Shakespearean events across the University of Arizona campus. One Friday afternoon, I went to 4th Avenue to ask some people there to choose and recite a few of the Bard's most famous lines. Hi, I'm Dave Mason, born in Tucson, Arizona, and we're enjoying the weather out here on 4th Avenue today. I'm here to read a quote from Shakespeare. Here it goes. Repair thy wit, good youth, or it will fall to cureless ruin. And I chose that quote because I think it has a little bit of uh, maybe spiky wit woven into it. Hi, I'm Nancy, and I'm from New Hampshire, and I'm very much enjoying Tucson and the wonderful weather because it's minus nine right now in New Hampshire. My quote from Shakespeare is from Romeo and Juliet, and it goes, 
Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou, Romeo? Deny thy father, and refuse thy name, or if thou wilt not, be but sworn my love, and I'll no longer be a Capulet. And I love that quote. Hello, my name is Tyree, and I'm just a guy going through enjoying life. Repair thy wit, good youth, or it will fall to cureless ruin. The Merchant of Venice. My name is Russ, I'm from Tucson. He exits Pursued by a Bear from The Winter's Tale, a stage direction. I chose that because it's pretty much my favorite stage direction of any play I've ever read. My name's Jeff, I'm from Flagstaff and I'm visiting Tucson this weekend. Men from children, nothing differ. Much ado about nothing. Hi, my name is Yvette Valdez. I was born in Long Island, New York. I moved to Tucson, Arizona to marry a wonderful man, and that is my reason for being here. Sigh no more, ladies. Sigh no more. Men were deceivers ever. I interpret that quote to mean that we as ladies should not sigh ever. We should always smile, as men will always be deceivers. Hi, I'm Jesus Alberto Robles Jr., LMT, breakdancing massage therapist. Men have died from time to time and worms have eaten them, but not for love. I chose this quote because it's beautiful. There's a uh, beauty in the breakdown. It's got the flora and fauna, darkness and light in it. Hi, I'm Maureen. I'm from upstate New York, but Fourth Avenue is my favorite spot in Tucson. This quote is from Julius Caesar. The fault, dear Brutus, is not in the stars, but in ourselves. This to me means that we have to look within ourselves to see what issues are happening in our lives or to see what is the common denominator in our celebrations because it ultimately comes down to us. Hi, my name is Ruben Acuna. I live in Tucson, Arizona. Looking forward to the Shakespeare Festival coming up soon. I'd like to read a quote from The Merchant of Venice. The man that hath no music in him, nor is not moved with concord of sweet sounds, is fit for treasons, stratagems, and spoils. The Merchant of Venice again. I chose this quote because I'm an aspiring musician and Shakespeare has a way of just uh, bringing out the best in musicians. Uh, my name is Janet Montes and uh, I'm from Sweden. Been living here for one and a half years now. So I'm gonna read uh, The Twelfth Night and uh, that is If music be the food of love, play on. In Swedish that will be Om musik var maten och kärlek, spela på. And I chose that one because I believe music is very, very important. I'm a music addict. And as well, it's a short one, and I wanted this to be short. And um, uh, I guess that's the main reason, actually. That's all. My name is Nika Gans. I was raised in Atlanta, but originally born in Jamaica. I love Shakespeare, so I'll be reading you this quote. And it is, thou hast most traitorously corrupted the youth of the realm in erecting a grammar school from Henry VI. I find that hilarious because Shakespeare, as we all know, was a playwright, so that shows he was a rebel. <laughs> Hi, I'm Elliot. I'm a native New Mexican relocated to Tucson. He exits, pursued by a bear. This is the last weekend to see Shakespeare's first folio in Tucson. It will be on display at the Arizona State Museum through March 15th. You can find out more and see video of the folks you just heard at firstfolio.arizona.edu. Come and visit the Arizona Public Media booth at the Tucson Festival of Books and stop by to tell me about a book you love. That's this Saturday and Sunday on the Mall at the U of A campus. 
Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can also find our podcasts on iTunes. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood, with assistance from Isaac Rodriguez. Our executive producer is Peter Michaels. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore.